We can't change ourselves. The Spirit changes, and the Spirit changes us through the working of His, of His Word. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, You now, by Your Spirit, through Your Word, would conform us as a potter forms the clay into people who are like Jesus Christ. And Lord, from one degree to the next, you would make us like him. We love you and we anticipate the good work you're doing in our hearts and we pray that you'd continue it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 now because we finished going through Matthew chapter 5 and we're going through still the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to rewind... 200-ish years ago, maybe 200-plus, and you were in early America in the 1700s, there was a time uh, when there were lots of churches scattered around the countryside um, that were kind of dead churches, Uh, churches that were filled with people because it was kind of cultural to go to church. Maybe you've been in that kind of situation um, or know those types of Christians that are more cultural Christians than heartfelt Christians. genuine Christ followers. Well, back in the day, a few hundred years ago, before the Great Awakening, there was kind of these these churches scattered around that had kind of frozen into a cold orthodoxy. They believed all the right things. Uh, They would have their homilies and their church services. But the main pervasive assumption was that people are going to heaven because they're, they're good people. When you get down to it, that God has got to be good to people because people are good, and so God is going to repay them for their goodness and get them to heaven. That was kind of a gospelless landscape in many ways. And then, by the grace of God, as we know, looking in our history books, God sent a couple preachers who ignited what we now call the Great Awakening. You guys know who the preachers are. One of them was a man by the name of George Whitfield, a traveling preacher who preached to crowds of thousands in the open air. And then the other was more of a theologian who preached in his small church in Northampton, uh, Jonathan Edwards. And, and God used these and other men to preach the true gospel. And the true gospel, as it was recovered, uh, began to change lives. I mean, people began to hear things that they had never heard before, even though they attended church all their lives. I mean, this is uh, even now today uh, in many uh, schools, you'll, you'll have to read at some point in your life, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards. And people get this caricature that he was some fire and brimstone preacher who only spoke of an angry God, which of course was not true at all. He was preaching the gospel, which of course begins with a message about sin. And people were hearing this message about their own sinfulness And it began to rattle them a little bit. They thought they were generally good people. They learned hard things about God, hard things about themselves, and they learned that because of God's goodness, He would have to deal with their sin. They learned that God was perfectly holy and that they had fallen dreadfully short of God's perfect standard and that if God were to judge them they would be condemned for their sin but they also learned not only that they learned that God was 
rich in love and overflowing in mercy. And that in the person of Jesus Christ, he had come to save sinners. And even if they were to put together all their good deeds, it would amount to a pile of manure in God's sight. They had nothing to offer God, but God in his free grace wants to save sinners. And this message of grace, of God's love, uh, in the midst of their own fallenness in sin, began to just create a revival. Uh, ever, you ever long for a revival? To see people seeing their own sin, but then not falling into despair, looking to Christ and experiencing forgiveness and hope and new life. And this began to happen as scores of people, those who were church attenders, began to re understand what they had maybe been taught or forgotten at some point, the gospel. They were being saved. You know what's cool about that? Is that gospel that they preached all those years ago is the gospel we preach this morning? Is the gospel we hope to be preached every Sunday here? Is the gospel that we hope is shouting from the rooftops, is being heralded in this community, the good news of what Christ has done to save sinners? And you know what else is thrilling is this possibility that God still saves by that same gospel and that he will use people like me and you, ordinary people, to bring that gospel to the lost. This is amazing to be a part of. And if you trace it back far enough, you keep going back far enough, you get back to Jesus Christ, the originator of this message who not only taught this message, but is the central focus point of this message. And we get to hear his sermon and this first inaugural sermon, the Sermon on the Mount as it's been passed down to us, is what it's called. We get to hear about this. And Jesus in this sermon is laying the groundwork so that we can understand the gospel of God's grace to us. And he's showing us what he has shown us, what true Christianity looks like in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and so on. He's going on to show us how we now as those who have been transformed are light to the world, are salt in the world, and that God has sent his son Jesus to be the fulfillment of the entire scriptures. The Old and New Testaments are all pointing to him. And then last week, we, we took a chunk of verses, well done hanging in there, and we looked at all the different ways that the Pharisees were abusing and even twisting Scripture so that they could hold themselves up in their own self-righteousness. And now we're going to get to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, I think it's appropriate that there's a chapter change there because he changes a little bit of the direction of the sermon. It's a kind of a new section of the sermon just to get your bearings, in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus was talking about this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so if you were sitting there listening, you, were, you would have heard, wait, the Pharisees, those people I look up to, I need to have a righteousness that's exceeding theirs? They, they have great righteousness. Isn't that good enough? And Jesus says, nope. Even the most religious person you know, even the best person you know, isn't enough. You need a greater righteousness. You need a categorically different righteousness, a righteousness that's not by the law, and the righteousness of not, not just following rules like the Pharisees were. You need something else. If you want to be right with God, it can't be just your good works. It can't be your good behavior. Jesus is saying right there, you need something that exceeds that. And you go through, and he explains how that works out in, in anger and in lust and in divorce and in making promises. And then you get to chapter 5, verse 48, the very end of that little section, and it's kind of the bookend. First he's saying you need this superior righteousness. And then look at verse uh, 48. This is the nail in the coffin to anyone who is self-righteous. He says this, all right, guys, you therefore must be perfect, 
Now you can try to soften what Jesus said there, but what he said there is that you need to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so the call on your life is perfection, Christian. The call on your life is not to make any peace with any sin. The call on your life is to live and strive to live up to all that God has revealed to us. Uh, We are not able to do that in this life due to our fallen nature, but that doesn't mean the standard is lowered. It means we look to Christ, who Him and Him alone can build that into us. And so these people listening to Jesus have become master rule followers. They were missing the point. They were adhering to the letter of the law, but they were missing the spirit of the law. And so Jesus needs to hone even in further on what they were doing and get to the heart. See, people often, we even, in our own self-righteousness, isn't this true? That we can look like criminals on the run from the searchlight of God's word. (laughs) And as God's word is trying to shine on us and even expose some of our sin, that sometimes we can weasel our way out of it, whether by making excuses or even as the Pharisees were doing, twisting Scripture so that it meant something other than what it actually meant. But Jesus wants to address your heart. Not just the outward acts of conformity to the rules, not just those things, the heart. Many of the crowds who were there listening to Jesus, would have been very impressed with outward acts of piety. And in this section we're about to look at, you'll see that there are outward actions done by people that the Jews would normally have applauded. In chapter 6, verse 2, we're talking about giving. In chapter 6, verse 5, he's talking about praying. In chapter 6, verse 16, fasting. And what Jesus begins to do by addressing these outward acts of giving, of praying, and of fasting, he begins to zero in on the propensity for these people he's talking to, and even for us this morning, to focus more on the external things we do than on the inner matters of the heart. He wants us to focus on who we are, not just what we do. And in fact, he begins to do something that maybe if you've grown up in church, you would say, why would he do that? He begins to warn us against doing good deeds. You say, huh? Well, look at with me at verse 6, or sorry, verse 1 of chapter 6. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Do you see that? Beware of doing your righteousness. Beware of doing it before other people to be seen by them. And if you do that, if your acts of righteousness are done in public so that people can see you and they could see how great you are, Jesus says you lost your reward. And this is a new section. Now, if you've been following along in the sermon, you might say, well, hold on a second. I thought Jesus just told me to do the opposite. Look, look back at chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Okay, hang on, Jesus. In this verse, you told me to shine and do good works so that everyone can see and give glory to God. And then here, you told me not to do good works so that people can see them. You say, what's the difference here? There's a crucial difference. 
In the crucial difference, you can see it, it's quite obvious in verse 16. Why should we do good works? It's right there. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. But who do they give glory to? They give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In chapter 6, verse 1, the good deeds that are being described, the practicing of righteousness, is done so that people would see us and give glory to us. And Jesus right here is getting straight to the heart behind why you do what you do. Why do you do the things you do? We should have a character that shines like light, that exudes the holiness of God because of God's work in our lives. That should come naturally to us if we've been born again. And he warns us against just doing things so that people see you. Do you see what he's getting at? Jesus is saying that it's possible for you to be doing things that everyone applauses and everyone sees as very good stuff to do, very religious, maybe even very mature to do that. But Jesus is saying that if it's done in such a way that you're trying to garner the praise of other people, it mutates into something completely different than a deed that honors God. It's something categorically different now. And what God would call it is hypocrisy. In other words, on the outside, these two things can look identical, but on the heart, if you look into the heart, which we can't do, but which God does all the time, it's something different. One is an act of humble praise to God. And the other is an act of self-seeking rebellion against God. And we, as humans, can't tell the difference often. Do you see what he's getting at here? He's speaking to a bunch of religious people, so it's appropriate to apply it to even us today, this morning at the church. Even the things you do this very morning... As we come and we greet each other and we shake hands and we do a lot of public good deeds as we gather and that's the way it should be. We have conversations, we sing, we serve. There are many things to do on a Sunday morning in which we're, we're living out the Christian walk together. But even now, it's possible for you and I to be doing these things not because we want to glorify God, but because we want to glorify ourselves. It's possible that we're doing this stuff because we crave approval from a friend, from a group, from a parent. We crave approval. We want them to say something positive or look positively uh, at us. And so Jesus confronts his people with this question, and I want this to be the question that crawls right into your heart, gets right into your conscience, and nags at you for a little bit. And let's just consider this corporately together, this question, for whose glory are you doing these things? For whose glory do you serve in the church? For whose glory do you give for whose glory do you pray? Jesus is making it clear this morning that you need to not only think about what you do, but to think about why you do it. 
He's saying that there is now a fork in the road. This is not something we can go, well, I'm just going to live for God's glory, and if people see how good I am, well, that's nothing I can help. And so I'm just going to kind of do both. I'm going to get my glory, and I'm going to get God's glory, and both of these things are going to be kind of the way I live. And Jesus says, here's a fork in the road that you must choose which fork you're going to go down this morning, this week, and every week from here on out. The question before you, the question before us as we approach this fork this morning that you need to ask yourself and I invite you to consider is for whose glory are you going to live? For whose applause are you going to live? As you live your life, who are you seeking to get their approval? Who do you want to notice? And Jesus will bring up some different things that really expose our self-righteousness here. And so I want to read this section, and I want to read the entire section so we see it together. And we're going to read verses 1 to 6. And then we're going to skip over the Lord's Prayer because we're going to do that whole thing next week. And then we're going to read the passage on fasting, 16 to 18. So follow along with me as we read this, and let's hear again from Jesus Christ and let him speak to us this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's skip down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in heaven, or sorry, who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I hope you've noticed repetition here. Jesus is repeating the same thing again and again. He talks about giving, he talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting. And he goes into repeating again this kind of same point. And I want to look at first the hypocrite's habits. I want to look at the hypocrite's heart. I want to look at the hypocrite's reward. And then we're going to conclude by looking at true righteousness and the reward of true righteousness. So first we're going to start by looking at these hypocrites. This is what Jesus continually says again and again. Don't act like the hypocrites. You say, what's a hypocrite? This word that comes up again and again, we know it. Pretty familiar word to us. Everyone knows what a hypocrite is because nobody likes a hypocrite. You can spot a hypocrite in the way that they try to bring attention to themselves. And Jesus is addressing hypocrites in relation to giving. He says, don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites do. When he's talking about praying, don't be like the hypocrites. And he's talking about fasting, don't look gloomy. Why? Like hypocrites. 
And he's talking about these people, hypocrites, in the classical Greek language, would have referred to someone literally playing in a drama. And in those days, they could wear masks. And uh, the same actor would play many parts. And for each part that they'd play, they'd put on a different mask. And they'd go up and they'd act it out. And in that language, you would call that person a hypocrite. It wasn't that they were trying to deceive you. It was part of the play that they were acting. And Jesus steals this word and he uses it and applies it to these play actors, these religious play actors, who, though their hearts were far from the Lord, but their lips were all about extolling God, their hearts were distant. It was a play. And Jesus uses that analogy. He even has a play on words. When Jesus says that you may be seen by them, in the original language, the word he uses sounds just like the word theater. Theomai. He's describing almost someone who's on a stage. It's like, hey, these hypocrites, they're doing their good deeds so that people can see. It's like they get up on stage and they put on their mask according to which group they want to impress and they live their lives not for the Father who's seeing their secret motives but for the crowds. They're hypocrites. They're play actors. It's not genuine. It's not springing out of love for God. The good deeds they do aren't sincere. They're done because maybe they're forced to, maybe they have to, or maybe they just want to impress people. And the Bible is filled, chock full, with hypocrites. From beginning to end, there are hypocrites. You find hypocrites in Genesis. And you go to the end of the Bible, you find hypocrites in Revelation. And you find hypocrites all between. And if you read the Gospels, who are, who's being talked to most and condemned most by Jesus himself? It's the self-righteous hypocrites. And you get to the book of Acts and you meet hypocrites who have infiltrated the church and you read the epistles and what do you hear? Paul or Peter or others warning about hypocrites entering into the church. These people who talk like they know, act like they know, but on their hearts they're like ravenous wolves. They look like sheep and maybe they wear the clothing of a sheep, but their hearts are far from God. This is a problem that the Bible addresses repeatedly from beginning to end in every part all the time. This idea, there are people, it happens in every religion, it happens in every country, you go to any corner of the globe, and you will find people who say things with their lips and live a different way. And these people, it so happens, love religion, and in different varying religions, because religion ends up being a platform on which they can build their reputation or express how great they are. Religion becomes the stage on which they act out how great they are. And the thing about the hypocrites, especially as you read through the Gospels, how many of these hypocrites even know they're hypocrites? I mean, they're so self-deceived. They would be the ones, if you were to say, hey, anybody here a hypocrite? They wouldn't raise their hand. They thought they were the ones that were righteous. This is a fascinating thing. No one plans on being a hypocrite. You know, sometimes I go to my daughter's schoolrooms. Uh, my daughter in first grade, my other daughter in kindergarten, and often they'll make a big uh, thing that says about me, and it'll have different questions about themselves, like what's your favorite color, what's your favorite movie, who's in your family, and what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know what? I've gone and I've looked at all the things that what kids want to be when they grow up. You know what I've never found? I want to be a hypocrite when I grow up. I have decided the career path of hypocrisy. I want to trick everyone into thinking I'm really good and holy. Meanwhile, do devious things. No one knows. In fact, if you're a hypocrite this morning, you might not even know it. You might be the first to deny it. 
It couldn't be me. Just like all the disciples at the Last Supper. It's not me, it's not me, it's not me. Isn't that a little bit frightening or at least a cause for self-examination? So what are the hypocrites' habits? That's our first heading, the habits of the hypocrites. What are their habits? Well, watch what they do. Verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. What are the habits? Well, there with the relation to their giving, they would do something so that everyone noticed. Here, Jesus mentions a trumpet being sounded. Now, this might be a little over-the-top hyperbole that Jesus uses, but the point is clear. He's saying one of the habits of the hypocrites is that they do their giving so that people know they're giving. They want people to know the way they give. They want people to know maybe the quantity or maybe how often or maybe what they give. I mean, this is what the hypocrite wants. They want people to notice. Why? It says that they may be praised by others. The habit of the hypocrite is to do something in public. He goes and Jesus mentions now prayer. What do the hypocrites do then? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Oftentimes in this culture there would be an alarm or maybe even it would be a trumpet that would sound and Faithful Jews would turn toward the temple and they would pray. It was just kind of a cultural thing often that they'd do. And sometimes what would happen is maybe you'd be in conversation with a person and and you'd be talking to them and then the trumpet would sound and they'd go, oh, hold on a second. And they'd turn and they'd raise their hands and they'd close their eyes and they'd pray out loud in public. And the whole reason they were doing that is so everyone would be impressed with them. Oh, wow, look how seriously he prays. Look how devoted he is in the praise that was only due God they would steal and take for themselves. And you get to now the section on fasting. And he tells them, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. And so the habit of the hypocrites in this was that they made themselves look gloomy for they disfigure their faces. If fasting was often a way in the Old Testament to celebrate or commemorate certain feast days or certain, uh, the Day of Atonement was a day of fasting. But then in the New Testament, there was no command to fast. There was no, you have to fast. It was something you would do if you wanted to. Often you would fast if you were mourning for sin or if you were demonstrating repentance, you would fast and so it was something that you could do in, in, in the mind of these people, in the mind of the hypocrites. Oh, I can show how serious I take the Lord by fasting and how serious I am about my sin. And I'm going to fast, but I'm going to make sure everyone knows it, that I'm going to fast. I'm going to disfigure my face. I'm going to look gloomy and sad. And Jesus says, come on. You're, you're, you, you think you impress God with this stuff? They equated seriousness and somberness with spirituality. Jesus calls them on it. Don't look gloomy like them. You see, for these people, for the hypocrites, their spiritual acts of devotion were seen as less valuable because they didn't have a wide audience. And so giving, praying, fasting... We're not really worth doing in private because who's going to applaud them in private? They were worth doing only if people could see. 
And so this brings us right to the hypocrite's heart. That's what the hypocrites did. Well, what's the heart? It says Jesus repeats it. They do it to be seen by others. And in this first section, in chapter 6, he says they do it to be praised by others. See, what was the heart? What was going on in the heart? Listen, the heart was craving human approval. The heart longed for people to recognize what they were doing. It ached that people noticed them. And as you, even now, go through different religious actions, again, we ask, why do you do these things? Do you hope people see? Do you give hoping to be noticed? Do you serve hoping that someone congratulates you? If no one affirms you, can you keep serving? Or is it only worth doing if there's applause? It's a good question to ask. See, sin, listen, sin doesn't want you to ask this question. Your sin and my sin, we want to run away from this question. This question is it's a searchlight. It really exposes. Hear this question. Don't ignore this question. Is there a difference between your private life and your public life? Is there a chasm between the two? Are you a better person in public and a worse person in private? For whose glory do you live? By answering that question, whether your life is more devoted in public than in private might help you to see that maybe the motivation is not for God and His glory. Maybe the motivation is just you want people to notice. You see, hypocrites would much rather look holy than be holy. They would much rather look like they have it all together than actually have it all together. This is another reason why hypocrites never confess their sin. This would be another question to ask yourself. Do you confess sin to others? See, often the hypocrite is trying so hard to maintain his own self-righteousness that if he were to confess sin, it would all come crumbling down. He would show a crack in the armor and wouldn't be able to present himself as great as he wants people to think he is. But they like to look holy. And so they're not going to say anything. They're not going to confess any sin. Hypocrites never do that. They'd much rather prefer to only look holy than actually deal with the sin by confession and repentance, seeking help by other fellow believers who would come alongside and walk through life with them. You see, the heart of the hypocrite craves. It's ravenous. It runs on the praise of men. It desires it so badly, and it will only do the things that are public acts of righteousness if People are seeing it. And if people aren't seeing it, why do it? If you're a play actor and you have a scheduled performance and you show up and no one is there in the audience, you can have less motivation to act it out in front of nobody. You see, the heart of the hypocrite is ravenous for human applause. It craves it. And so, friends, this morning, are you aware of that in your own heart? Are you aware of your, the ability, 
that the human heart has to slip into this mindset? Because it's true of every fallen person in this room, which is all of us. And we are prone to hear the praise of the people we can see rather than live for the approval of the invisible God that we can't see. And so the heart of the hypocrite longs for this stuff. It, the heart of the hypocrite wants to steal glory due to God and give it to himself. And look at what Jesus says. Now we get to the hypocrite's reward. We saw the hypocrite's habit. We saw the hypocrite's heart. Now we're looking at the hypocrite's reward. And what is the reward? Jesus says the same thing three different times in each one of these little sections. He says about giving. He says about praying. He says about fasting. He says this. If you do it in public, he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They have received their reward. You see what Jesus is saying? So if you live your life to be seen, and you pray to be seen, you fast to be seen, and you give to be seen, and might, maybe at some point someone notices, hey, look at that person pray. That person prays pretty good. In a prayer meeting, that person who goes on and on and uses those big words and no one else understands, and they're praying and they're praying and everyone's impressed. Well, you know what Jesus says? You know the reward for that? The reward is everybody looking at you saying, wow, that guy knows how to pray. That's it. You get what you got. No more. No reward in heaven. No, nothing that pleases God, certainly in that. You impress people, what do you get? You get impressed people. That's it. Nothing else. And the reward of the hypocrite is you get it here, you get it in this life, and after this life it's done. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. And you've probably met the people who crave human approval so bad that they live in the past or they live in the moments where they got the most approval. They live in the glory days. That great theological film, uh, Napoleon Dynamite, has that, that character, Uncle Rico, Always living in the glory days. Remember when I used to be able to throw this football over the mountains and he'd always bring up the past and the days that he was great and the days that he received the praise of men? Well, why do you do that? It's because if you lo live for the praise of men, men are fickle. The praise never lasts and it certainly never satisfies. And so if you live for the praise of men, you're going to be constantly going back to those glory days that you were praised and you're going to live in that false reality and you're going to Keep the, the glory alive by retelling stories of your own grandeur. And these are these people will do this. Every story they tell and every conversation you have is retelling stories of their own greatness. This is a good way to even evaluate our own lives. On what, uh, what, what do we dwell on? What do we talk about when we're talking with each other? Are we angling every conversation to come back to me and my accomplishments and my glory? Because that's the reward. Jesus says, hey, if you fight for that, if you want to live for that, you'll get that. It'll just never satisfy. And you'll live your whole life living in the glory days of some forgotten, bygone age of when you were successful and people liked what you did. And you'll get to heaven and realize that God was not for one split second impressed with that. So what do you want in life? Who's Deep down, whose glory do you seek? Now, if you're a Christian, and if you're honest, you will confess that many of your acts of service, like giving, praying, or fasting, are a mixed bag of motives. 
Isn't that true? That you can feel that you really and genuinely want to give glory to God. And the reason that you're serving is because genuinely you want to see Christ exalted. And isn't it true that even though the resolve is to give Christ glory at times, almost slinking in from the shadows on either side, is this also this subtle craving that people pat you on the back too? And there's this maybe unarticulated desire for people to notice. Yeah, Jesus, I want to live for your glory. But I also, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have a little applause here and there. Isn't it true that we are these kinds of, you know, Romans 7 people divided? Uh, we do the very things we hate sometimes. And even though we want to do certain things, sometimes we don't do them like we want to do them. And maybe if you're a sensitive Christian with a, a conscience that is easily pricked by Scripture, you might be saying, well, I can't do anything because everything I do is tainted with selfishness. You might be thinking, well, I can't even serve because I know that if I serve, I'm going to be tempted to, you know, glorify myself. And I don't want to do that, so maybe I can't serve at all. And if that's you, then I think what you do is, well, you move forward in service and you confess your motives at the same time. You say, Lord, this is for you. I sincerely want this to be for you. And I also know that my propensity is to steal glory from you, but I don't want to do that, Lord. I confess that. You ask for forgiveness for that. And then you move forward in doing the right thing. There's never, it's never right to say, I'm not going to do the right thing because I might do it wrongly. No, no do the right thing. <laughs> do the right thing and confess motives as you go. The reward for the hypocrite for the, is the praise of men. And it's an effective lure that has drawn many people into absolute destruction. That they desire to see themselves lifted up they desire to get compliments and every compliment is another pump of air inflating their ego and they get so many compliments that the words of Christ here about humility are drowned out now friends this is why we must regularly day in day out week in week out remind ourselves of the gospel right because how do you stand in pride, in hypocrisy at the foot of the cross? How can you stand seeking approval for yourself when the cross of Christ is right there? There's no way. If we truly understand what Christ has done, we've got to commit ourselves to the gospel. The gospel is like a needle. It deflates, it pops it punctures the ego. It deflates the pride. We are reminded, if we understand the gospel, we are reminded that we contributed nothing to salvation. If we understand the gospel, we understand that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins and worthy of the righteous wrath of God. If we remember the gospel, we say, I brought nothing to the table. I didn't love God first and then he responded and loved me. He loved me first. Before I was lovable, when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And if I rehearse these realities, I, I hopefully will remain humble. If it were not for the hand of God's omnipotent 
grace, I would still be sentenced to death. I would be condemned to die. I would be lost in sin. The gospel deflates my pride, but it at the same time fills me with love. It compels me to serve with the right motive to Christ and to Christ alone be the glory. See, the reward for the hypocrite is that people see you, they approve of you, they like you a little more, and that's it. But now we get to true righteousness. That's our fourth heading, true righteousness. Look with me at verse 3. Let's see what a true righteousness really looks like. In relation to giving, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Jesus is saying that you, you, this is not meaning that you've got to like tie one hand behind your back as the offering plate comes around and your other hand is not supposed to know. You toss it in. This is just to get people all messed up if they try to take this literally. This is Jesus speaking in hyperbole again. And what Jesus means is, is that you ought to give so nonchalantly or almost so disinterestedly that you give and you don't think much of it. You don't think it's so great a thing that you do when you give. Even, it's not only think, it's talking about giving in secret. It is doing that. It's talking about you ought not to give and so that everyone can see. But it's also saying that you ought not to think so much about your own gift. Give generously and don't sit there and stare at how big your gift was. Give generously and don't sit there and reflect like you're looking in the mirror going, yeah, I did a pretty good job. I gave a pretty good gift this morning. Jesus' point is, be private. And don't even think much of it. Just give. Just be compassionate. Be overwhelmingly generous as you give to the people who are in need and as you give to your church and as you give to the poor. Perhaps you can ask yourself, do I only give to get recognition? See, true righteousness isn't doing any of this to get recognition. It's doing it to glorify God. Look at verse 6. Now he speaks of true righteousness in relation to prayer. When you pray, go into your room. Shut the door and pray to your fathers in secret. You see this? Not this stand out in the synagogues on the streets and raise your hands and make this big deal out of it so that everyone sees how holy you are. Now Jesus isn't forbidding public prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, men are called to pray and even he mentions raising hands in prayer. He's not, he's not saying that you shouldn't pray in public. We do that as a church and I think it's actually commanded as a church. But what he is getting at is that it should never be showy it should never draw attention to the prayer. It is meant to be a public, any public prayer is meant to be something that is coming out of the private prayer and then it's a corporate unity as we all pray together. One person is just giving voice to that prayer. And so private prayer is kind of the seed where public prayer, prayer blossoms. Jesus is saying true righteousness will demonstrate itself in your private prayer life. True righteousness is shutting the door, getting alone, and praying to your Father in secret. Listen, if you want to take your spiritual temperature, you want to really hold the Scriptures up to your heart and, and get a look in and see, really, if you just genuinely love the Lord, and you're just genuinely living for His glory, look at your prayer life. Not the prayers you say before a meal, 
Not that even the prayers you say before bed, the kind of stuff, not that those are wrong, we should do those things, but take a look at that private prayer. Take a look at those, those prayers you pray when no one else even knows you're praying. I believe that this aspect of private prayer is the measure of a person in a way that nothing else is. It's the most private of disciplines, and it measures your soul in a way that nothing else really can. Martin Lloyd-Jones, listen to what he says about this. He says, prayer is the highest activity of the human soul, and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Ultimately, therefore, a man discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he's alone with God. And have we not all known what it is to find that somehow we have less to say to God when we are alone than when we are in the presence of others? It should not be so, but it often is so that it is when we have left the realm of activities and outward dealings with other people and we're alone with God that we really know where we stand in a spiritual sense. Who you are in your private prayer life is who you really are. Pretensions stripped away. You have no one left to impress. No one else is watching. It's you and God. And ask yourself this. How do you pray? in private do you pray in private do you have devotion that shows itself in your prayers it's almost like pressure building up within you that's only release valve is to pray and does that happen as a regular part of who you are as a part of your character could someone who doesn't pray in private possibly have a living relationship with God Jesus is saying here that his disciples will pray. They'll pray in private. The ones who really know him, the ones who follow after him, they won't pray all in a showy way to get attention from themselves, but they will pray in private. And then he gets to fasting in verse 17. He speaks of uh, the reward of fasting or the way the true righteousness shows itself in, in the way of fasting. He says, don't do it to be seen by others. Wash your head. Wash your face. Make sure that no one else knows. And if fasting is ever to be done by you, this is again not something commanded in the New Testament, but something that you are, that, that has been done in the church throughout the ages, and even in the New Testament, there are passages that talk about Christians who fast. It's not commanded, but if you ever fast, it should be something that's private. It should be something that no one else knows about. Save your spouse, maybe someone really close to you, an accountability kind of thing, but but really, it shouldn't be something public that you do to get people to notice you. See, true righteousness, Jesus is saying again and again and again, listen, true righteousness is from your heart. It's not something you put on and take off like a mask. It's something that pours out like a spring. And so it does color the way you give. It does color the way you pray. It does shape the way you fast. All of these things are flavored by true righteousness. And if it's part of your essential character, then it doesn't matter if you're in public or you're in private. This just comes out of who you are. 
And so the urgent question for you this morning and for us again is who are you on the inside? Who are you when no one else watches? And is your public life way better than your private life? And what does that say about you if so? Listen, friends, we believe in a gospel that saves. And we believe in a gospel that transforms. We believe in a gospel that doesn't just get you a ticket to heaven. We believe in a gospel that changes you from the inside out. And so evidence of true salvation is people who are genuinely converted. Jeremiah 31, 33, part of the new covenant is God says that he's going to write the law on the hearts of his people. He's going to write the law right there on the people's hearts so that from within them and from the spirit he gives, there's a compulsion to live righteous, holy lives as a part of their essential character, not as a part of the things they do. See, the gospel we believe, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, creates in you a humility, poor in spirit, a meekness, a sensitivity towards sin. This is all part of just what it means to be a Christian. This isn't super Christianity. This is just regular Christianity. And so all of Jesus' disciples are called to live out this new life that God has put in them. See, the disciples say, I can't do this. And they're right. And they say, I'm poor in spirit. And they're right. And then they look to Christ, and Christ says, I have everything you need. And Christ gives them this power and his presence and his provision And then they're able to live the life that God has called them to live, but only by faith and faith alone. We live for his glory. We'll finish here by looking quickly at the Father's reward, the reward of this true righteousness, this saying that Jesus says again and again three different times, and your Father, see, he's talking about the true righteousness. If we do this in secret, we're not doing it for the praise of men. We're doing this for his glory because we've been changed from the inside out. He's saying if we do it this way, look at what it says, verse 4 or verse 6 or verse 18, just look at it in the scriptures. It says, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Stop and think about that for a second. Your Father sees you. Your Heavenly Father sees you. We forget this truth, or if we don't forget it, we often don't live like it's true. God sees you. All the time, He's seeing you. Too often this has no practical implication on the way we live our lives. Charles Spurgeon once told a story about a man who was about to commit an act of sin and then he saw there was a cat in the same room and he wouldn't do it anymore because the cat was watching. How much more if God is watching? All the time God is watching. All the time he's paying attention to you. Maybe there are certain things we won't do if people are watching, but we're okay doing if God is watching. Listen, friends, God sees. God sees you He knows all history perfectly. He sees all future just as clearly. Everything he made, he understands down to the smallest detail. He understands the swirling of the galaxies. He understands the movement of molecules. He understands the depths of the sea, the reaches of outer space. He understands it completely, totally. He forever and always knows what is happening in the world and in his universe. He never for a split second, not for a moment forgets or for a moment turns away. And listen, his knowledge of you is perfect. His understanding of you and your motives 
is clear. It's complete. Every thought and every motive that even you don't understand, because frequently we don't even understand our motives, is in broad daylight to God. Every attitude, it's open and laid bare before him. God sees you. He sees you perfectly. He sees you deeply. He sees you completely. You hide nothing from him. You hide no words from him. He has heard everything. He has seen every thought. He goes totally into the depths of your heart and understands more than you could possibly understand about yourself. Hebrews says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give account. Your entire life is laid bare before God. Listen, to heed Jesus' warning here, if you're trying to construct a stage on which to act out a drama in which you are the hero, God already has found you out. The beauty of that is God knows fully and completely and you can repent and you can turn to Christ and he will forgive you of even your greatest and most vile hypocrisy. And if you're a follower of Christ, you can recognize your own sinfulness and even your own propensity toward this and you can confess your poverty of spirit and you can admit that even when there are times that your motives are mixed, that, that you sincerely, you want to please the Lord, God will forgive us. And he sees us. And if you in genuine, heartfelt sincerity are trying to please the Lord in the things you do, listen to this. Jesus said it. I say it now to you. This is God's word of comfort. He says to us right now, your Father who sees you, your Father who's seeing all this in secret will reward you. He sees it. Maybe no one else sees Maybe no one sees the generosity as you give to the church. Maybe no one sees how you're stretching your budget to make things work, and yet you're still living in generosity. Maybe no one understands how hard the finances are right now. Maybe no one gets it. No one else knows. And maybe you may give faithfully your whole life, and you won't hear a single word approving you or applauding you for those things. But your father sees your heavenly Father sees, and he'll reward you. And maybe you've been one who's quietly been persevering in prayer. Maybe no one has even seen the tears of your agonizing prayers in petition to God. But your Father sees. He recognizes that. He knows what's going on. He knows your heart. And he understands that even though mixed motives might be a reality, even in your own heart, your motives are cleansed by the blood of Christ and God is pleased with you. He is given pleasure by the humble acts of obedience of his people. And so keep praying. Keep persevering in those things. Maybe no one sees how you ache over your own sin. Maybe no one understands how deeply you feel the ache of your own failures. Maybe you've even fasted in this morning as you long for Christ's righteousness to be manifested more deeply in your own life. God sees. Your Father sees. Your Father knows. And your Father will reward you one day. Friends, 
We're beggars. We're beggars. We're poor. We're pilgrims on this journey. We have nothing to offer God. And isn't it amazing that one day, like pilgrims, we'll get home to heaven and God will reward us for the way we lived our lives? Isn't that amazing? That God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that amazing? Because we will sit there and we'll go, well, it wasn't me, right? It wasn't me, it wasn't me, it was Christ, it was all him. He was the one who found me a lost sinner. He was the one who found this wandering soul. He was the one who died for me. And all my sins were put on him, and he paid for them on the cross. He was the one who rose from the dead as a preview of my own resurrection. He was the one who did it all. He clothed me in the robes of righteousness. It was Christ. It was him. He took me by the hand and gently led me like a good shepherd all the way home. How could we ever say that we deserved any of it? And yet, on that day, he says he will reward us. And that only proves, again, the overflowing, overabunding, super, mega grace of God that lavishes us in kindness we don't deserve. Because we deserve none of this, and we get more than we could ever ask or imagine. If you've been acting in hypocrisy, it's time to come clean. And sometimes we fear that if we take the mask off, we're going to be too deformed to be loved. Too ugly to be accepted. But that mindset doesn't understand the grace of God. The good news is grace means you don't have to hide. Grace means you can confess your sins to God and to others. See, the only person in the entire universe who can see all of you filth inside and out and still love you the same is your Savior Jesus, and that's what he wants to do, but the mask has to come off. And even if you're a Christian, you've been walking with the Lord, but there's things you just don't want other people to know about, maybe struggles you have. The only place you should feel safe, being able to remove that mask and to confess that sin, is in the church. Why? Because we all know at one time we were wearing the same mask and we had the same deformities. And we have no, uh, no idea that we're better than anyone else here. And so we embrace and we forgive and we commit ourselves to each other in love. See, throw yourselves to Christ. If you're a hypocrite, throw yourself to Him. If you've had mixed motives, say, no, it's all for Christ, I will do it for Him. Confess that. And so we end where we begin. We end where we begin. Who are you living your life for? Why do you do these religious things? Whose glory do you seek? We're going to sing one last song. Before we do, I want to ask you to bow your heads and spend a moment in reflection. In private prayer right now, before the Lord, I want you to bow your heads in a moment of reflection and prayer. And if there are things for you to confess to your Father, confess them now. If there are things you need to bring up before him, bring them up now. If there are things you need to praise him for, 
Praise him now. And in a moment, we'll finish by singing a song called All Glory Be to Christ.